You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Squama by Sportiva. A shoe for climbers who are not afraid to send. Climbing obsession. Why are you so obsessed? Squama. Squama vegan. Precision. Stability. Squama vegan. Skin like. Why are you so obsessed? What would you do for the sand? What would you do for the sand? Squama by Sportiva. Squama. What would you do for the sand? Elevate your sending with the Squama. And elevate your consciousness with the new Squama Vegan. All the sending without the animal-derived materials. Find the Squama at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Squama. What would you do for the sand? Yeah, hi, Norma Nation. This is Jeff Bezos. Bezos? Yeah, <laughs> however you want to say it. Uh, you may have heard of a little company called Amazon.com. It, it, it's not actually little. It's, it's fucking humongous. But anyway, I'm kind of like your crack dealer for junk that you really don't need. <laughs> but even though I need a solid gold ankler for my second super yacht, I'm going to make a solid gold suggestion this holiday season and, and ask that you help me get on the good side of Chris at the EnormaCast by buying direct from the, the little guys that sponsor his enormously good podcast. <laughs> Enormous. Get, get it? It's, it's in the name. Anyway, there's three small businesses that sponsor his show, and, and buying direct from them really makes a difference to their bottom line, as opposed to mine. I don't even know where that is, frankly. I mean, is it like when you only have one Lamborghini and not <laughs> seven? PeterWGilroy.com makes incredible hats, jewelry, and artistic accessories out of a place called New Mexico. I don't know where that is, but it sounds amazing. Uh, BelaySpecs.com is just a couple of, of people, humans, I think, uh, banging out those crazy glasses that save your neck. And BonfireCoffee.com roasts great coffee in a small shop out of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Very resourceful. It's extremely resourceful, these people. And, and they're all small, and, and they're all supporting climbers. And, and, and look, I know it's hard to quit me and my robot overlords. You know, I kind of <laughs> designed it that way. But, but click over to any of these small vendors and, and entry Normo. Or, or a NormaCast at checkout. I can't remember which, but try them both. Anyway, you can get a discount, get a great gift for one of your friends, and maybe, just maybe, Chris will return one of my 40 emails I've sent him. Oh, wait, hold on, let me press send. Okay, never mind, 41 emails. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You playing here? We're doing the... Uh... Enormo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. It's 20,000 seats. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. 
But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is actually the 1st of January, 2023. About 9.30 here in Colorado. And this is episode 255 of the Enorma Cast, a conversation with representatives from the Global Climbing Initiative, Danny Dobrit and Prerna Dangi. So yeah, Happy New Year. And technically, this is the last episode of 2022. I just couldn't quite pull it off while uh, traveling around for the holidays. It's funny how difficult it is to find a quiet space and some time to yourself when you're zipping around the country visiting friends and relatives. So, Happy New Year to everybody, and thanks for a great year. 2022 at the EnormaCast, anyway, was pretty awesome. We had some big shows. We had a lot of ups and downs, a lot of strikes and gutters, laughs, tears. I'm sure you probably got mad at me a couple times. You probably were uncomfortable. I was, certainly on a few of these episodes this year. I mean, hell, until I got that first laugh out of Yanya, I thought I was going to be crushed like some World Cup volume just by her steely glare. But that's just the way we roll over here, you know? And if you've moved on to more curated and manicured pastures, then you can't hear this anyway. So I bid you adieu in your absence. Hats off to the folks that have been here from the beginning, and thanks for showing up to the people who found it in 2022, and everybody in between. Love you guys. Wouldn't do it without you. Be awfully dumb, actually, just sitting here talking to myself, wouldn't it? Seemed pretty pathetic. Okay, so here's to a non-pathetic 2023. Little Brooklyn distillery whiskey left over from last year. All right. Where are we at today? We are talking to Danny Imprerna from the Global Climbing Initiative. What's that? Well, you're going to have to listen and find out. Um, These ladies are awesome. We had a great time talking. It's about helping some nascent climbing communities in uh, parts of the world where it's a little harder to get gear, a little harder to get climbing going. And in addition to working with Global Climbing Initiative, Prerna, who's from India, works with Gauri Varanashi, who I interviewed in 2021. You guys might remember that at their organization, CLAW, which is Climb Like a Woman, helping to introduce women in India to rock climbing. So yeah, this is a fun one about giving back to the community. I think it's a great way to end 2022 and the holiday season. I hope you survived. hope you reveled. But man, it's exhausting. I just got back to uh, my house a couple hours ago to be gone for 10 days. So much food and talking and traveling and airplanes. Oof. Anyhow, let's get going on 2023, shall we? Brr. It's wintertime, buckaroos. 
as my daddy still says. It's colder than a well driller's took us out there. Which means them doggies are shivering and you got death metal blasting in the dark of the early morn because you're on your way to go ice climbing. And though in this cowpoke's opinion, they should be staging an intervention rather than stoking the addiction. Black Diamond is and has always been at the forefront of innovation when it comes to pure ice and mixed climbing. I mean, just look at the names of Black Diamond's ice tools for crying out loud. The Cobra, the Reactor, the Fuel, the Viper. How the hell are you not going to feel like a boss wielding two Vipers in your hands? Of course, it helps to forget that Vipers generally would stay away from ice or go dormant in those temperatures, as would Cobras. But try not to think about that while you're swinging your way up a glorious blue chunk of God's frozen creation. So once the natural euphoria of rewarming your hands begins to ebb, head over to BlackDiamondEquipment.com or your favorite local shop and check out BD's ice tools, ice screws, apparel, and all the other accoutrement that goes with scraping up frozen rock and water. Because hell, aren't we really just here for the accoutrement? Are you on the road to recovery? I don't know. (laughs) Tibia stress fractures are really hard to heal, and so he said the road to recovery doesn't even begin until you're painless. So I'm not painless yet, so we'll see. But what's the prescription? You just got to stay off it, huh? Yeah, he said the only activity I'm allowed to do is swimming. I need to become a swimmer now. I used to when I was like in middle school. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think your peak swimming is usually about that age, right? Yeah. But for most I was, people. I was a, a swim teamer when I was like 11 and then that was mm. the end of my career. <laughs> I, was a di- I was a competitive diver as like a first and second grader. <laughs> so, honestly. <laughs> I love that you call yourself a competitive diver. Well, I mean, I was on a diving team where I would like go to meets and dive and like we, we were all like these little mascots, like every team had like these tiny little kids like me that that were, you know, we'd go out there and basically like dive off the board in some random fashion and then they'd score us and everything just like we were proper <laughs> And we'd get little medals and stuff, so you know how that goes. <laughs> but that was also the peak of my swimming career. <laughs> so um, I don't mind swimming, but I don't like cold water. Um, anyway, Prerna, it's prer. Pre, say it again. <laughs> it's Prerna. Uh, somebody told me a good way to tell it to Americans is P apostrophe R P R apostrophe E R N A. Okay, Prent. No, it's P-R-E apostrophe R-N-A. Prerna. So the enunciation is at the A, Prerna. Prerna, Prerna. You keep trying to roll your R's, Chris. I know, it's because I speak speak some Spanish. So it's funny because as soon as I, if I'm traveling anywhere in the world, I don't care what language they speak, as soon as I get that stress level of like... You start speaking Spanish. I start speaking Spanish. I do that too. Yeah, yeah. I learned like, I have oh, no. like a little bit of Arabic and a, a little a, a little bit more than a little bit of Spanish. And when I get stressed, one of those languages pops out accidentally. <laughs> totally, that's actually funny because I, I read that you, Danny, had <clears throat> worked in Jordan. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, I was just thinking about that is that's really where it happened. Like I kept spitting Spanish um, at the Jordanians like because <laughs> I, I climbed in Wadi Rum some years ago. Oh, awesome. It was just that stress of like, I don't know this language and like, see. This is the only other like, language oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
And so I don't know if that was insulting, um, even worse, or I don't know. But yeah, I kept doing that. But I mean, they just looked <laughs> You're at not me alone. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people trying to say my name roll the R's and are like, yeah, that's right, right? And I'm like, mm. <laughs> it's, it's a Hindi word uh, derived from Sanskrit and then converted into an English alphabet. But there's no alphabet for it if I were to, you know, say it the right way. So don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Let's move forward. <laughs> um, it's, I'm going to hang up on it every time, though, now. How am I not going to do that? Um, I'll just okay. try not to. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, this, this is how I've been saying Prena. it. So it's Prena. like a prayer. It's like a yeah. prayer, and then you add na to it. Prena. Prena. Yes. Prena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Good. Prena. That's good. That's good enough. Okay, cool. Well, um, <laughs> Thank you for that. You are not coming to us from India, though. You're you're here in the states uh, in Moab. So uh, are and and when I um set this thing up, somebody one of you get, one of you mentioned that you are about to go back to India. Is that right? Yeah, I'm uh, on my last week here. I'm flying out on the thirtieth, just mm-hmm. in a couple of days. And it's been four and a half months. Oh, okay, right. Sampling the crags in the U.S. Quite the epic adventure. Is this um? I mean, what what was your background? Have you been to the states before? Uh, I visited Alaska, and I wouldn't say <laughs> it's the same. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I'd come like in twenty fourteen to climb Denali. Okay. Uh, just swung by Seattle, went to the Pike Place Market, and headed back home. So this is my first proper American trip. And you've been mostly, it sounds like you're an alpinist too. Um, I was, again, reading your bio, um, but you've been mostly rock climbing on this trip? Yeah, I think um, I kind of stepped uh, back, took a few steps back from mountaineering because I wanted to do more technical routes that just required me to spend more time on rock. And uh, my main goal, one of the main goals for this trip was to get on long routes that that were close enough to get a beer at the end of the day. Because it's possible. So. Yeah, it's it's funny when you said that. I was going to make a little joke about that. About like, yeah, and then you also get to like sleep somewhere proper and drink some beers or whatever. I mean, I, don't know, I didn't mm-hmm. know whether or not you drank. But that idea of like just being done at the end of the day is pretty uh, comfortable about rock climbing and mm-hmm. cragging and stuff like that. Um, so tell me a couple highlights of uh, what, what you got into when you were here just to sort of get to know you as a climber. Yeah, well, I started with, uh, you know, sandbag crag number one, which was uh, El Dorado Canyon. And I was like, this is, you know, I just landed in the US and I'm going trad climbing. And everyone's spoken so highly of uh, climbing in Boulder. And I'm on this route called Vertigo, which is a classic and has this big chalkstone just like, you know, like waiting to come off. I'm like, hmm, this is classic. So that was my first taste of like <laughs> the old school trad scene. And then it was just that like in different places. Because then I went to Yosemite and I and to Wallamy. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, it's like now I know when someone says old school, I know what mindset to carry mm-hmm. with me on that climb. But I, I essentially started in Denver and then I went to Seattle to do my SPI course. So I okay. got a scholarship for my, uh, for a buy, a buy box scholarship, which is kind of the reason why this trip, like, you know, came together mm-hmm. and as, as well as an assessment. But those were like two months apart. 
So I was like, okay, this is obviously a sign from the universe for me to take this epic trip and also collect more climbs for my resume for the next set of courses. Can I can I go back actually though and um because you did mention Colorado in the mm-hmm. beginning. So did you literally get off the plane and go do vertigo or did you do something <laughs> else first in in Nelda? Because that's kinda like I mean, it, you know, it's that's like a pretty big pill to swallow unless you just didn't know what you were getting into. <laughs> no, yeah. I think I did vertigo on like my third day or something. Okay. Still. On, yeah, still. <laughs> it was it was a lot. I got on uh, a class another classic um not Bastille, thank God, because that is polished AF. Uh, <laughs> and I, that would have scared me even more. But it was really cool because I just couldn't, I didn't know how many people climbed in the US. I don't think I ever thought about that. I like, there's a bigger market, there's a lot more climbers, but I didn't know how many climbers that there's waiting in lines. That's a concept I wasn't familiar with. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got on the wind tower uh, with a friend of mine who was climbed within India. So he was able to like, you know, give me the translation of the whole scene. And that was needed because, you know, right. just culturally so different. Like we walked in the, into the park and I see like right. people climbing here and there across cliffs. And it's just most of my climbing uh, exploits in India. It's only the people that I'm going with. We don't meet anybody else there. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's quite the start. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I talked to as as we talked, we mentioned when I met you in uh, Lander. I talked to Gauri, mm-hmm. um, Vanarashi, right, Vanarashi, and uh, yeah, I mean, that was you know what I called the nascent uh, climbing scene, you know, in India, where we think about there's you know so many people there, just literally, and then there's just this tiny climbing community. So yeah, you probably saw more climbers in that one day than yeah, practically possibly. exist in, in India, you know, especially the wind tower. Yeah. I mean, that thing's like an anthill, you know, you're just mm-hmm. like, people mm-hmm. just like crawling on it. Like, <laughs> yeah, that must've been pretty wild. Um, well, cool. I'm glad, I'm glad you had a yeah. good trip overall. It sounds like you did anyway. Um, I was in, uh, yeah. So I, I was in the North Cascades after that, where I stayed with Danny and, uh, climbed a bunch in, um, I, I actually managed to get to Leavenworth index, like really like the whole feeler because some of these crags I'd heard of only after coming to the US. Like I don't think I knew about Index, but uh, I saw photos and, and everyone's like, oh, this is the place to do trad cracks where I learned a bunch of like people that I looked up, look up to were like, this is where I learned how to track climb. And I was like, I must go. And um, daddy and I ma- made a visit and it was, I, I went there and I was like, oh, this is just like, Vashisht in Manali and like the place where we're opening trad lines. So it was really cool to kind of mm-hmm. see that same rock type and, you know, the psych that people have for that rock. And I'm like, that's what we've got in our backyard. We're not going to tell anyone about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's switch to you, Danny. Um, and and maybe, maybe we can again, like position you as a climber, just talking about um what the two of you did together when Prerna came up and maybe go from there just to like i said get a little background of you as a climber sure uh well Prerna came to visit for two weeks and we <laughs> we did some pretty casual stuff like i said i've been injured for almost 10 months so it's been kind of a, a long journey of recovery for me but we went to the north cascades and we took a party of six because we just went with a bunch of friends and it took 14 hours. It was an epic because it was too many people. <laughs> but it was really fun. I think it was Parana's first time in the North Cascades, which is just absolutely beautiful. 
Um, and like one of my favorite parts about living in Washington is like we have these beautiful peaks that just come out of the ground and beautiful climbing, beautiful wildflowers, beautiful nature. And you can get out there and really actually be alone, which is nice. Um, and it's not that far from Seattle. So that's pretty cool. So we all did that together, Perna and I and a bunch of my friends from Seattle. Um, and so that was Perna's introduction to the North Cascades. And then we did the exits, um, which are a pretty popular climbing area right outside Seattle. It's where I do a majority of my outdoor climbing. Um, so we went to exit 38 and then Perna also got to go to exit 32, which is where we have some of our hardest sport climbing in the city, which is really nice um, to have some of that like 30 minutes outside the city. Uh, and then index as well, which I love index. It's really fun. And yeah. Then, the index people are, are such devoted index people. Like <laughs> they are. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite extreme. that extreme, okay. but <laughs> I have a lot of friends who like put up routes in index and like they're index diehards. Like that is, the, yeah. the only place to climb in Washington. <laughs> you know, did you grow up in Seattle? Are you like that diehard or um, what no, did you so I'm sort actually, of end up there for I'm the climbing from, or for something else? Well, kind of not for the climbing. So I'm actually from Michigan. Um, okay. I grew up just outside of Flint. And I guess I can hear that now that you mention it <laughs> yeah. I, as a Midwesterner myself. <laughs> yeah. So I lived there until two years after college. So my background is actually in healthcare and nursing. So I went to school, mm -hmm. became a nurse. I didn't get introduced to climbing until after I graduated. So I moved to Oakland, California as a travel nurse. Um, okay. And we had a climbing gym 20 minutes from my apartment. And so my roommate and I went and bought climbing shoes and got a membership to the climbing gym. And that was sort of my introduction to climbing was like, well, we just moved to this new town. We're going to take on new hobbies. And so I started with bouldering, um, mostly because I was afraid of heights. And so I was afraid of sport climbing and top roping. And so I started with bouldering. And then kind of eventually progressed a little bit into top roping. Um, and then I moved to Washington also for travel nursing. And when I came to Washington, I was like, I have been wanting to learn to climb outside. And I had a really hard time finding people to teach me. Um, I think having started in the gym scene, most of the people I climbed with were only gym climbers. So I didn't know anybody mm -hmm. who climbed outside and I wanted to try it. And so I hired a guide to teach me and my roommate how to climb outside and how to lead climb. And so we went to like a one day class in Leavenworth. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to start leading now, I guess. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I started getting into that. started doing lead climbing when I got into Seattle. Um, and then basically I have really started taking on climbing. I love to travel internationally. This was sort of pre uh, global climbing initiative. I started realizing like, oh, if I travel somewhere, there's climbers in most of these countries and all I have to do is message them. And now I have a friend to hang out with in this country and I have an activity to do. And so that became a really big push for me to continue to want to invest in climbing was this idea of like, oh, I can travel and have this like community almost pre-created for me um, because like I'm very much a people person. And so what mm -hmm. I really value, I think my favorite part of climbing, I like climbing a lot, but I love the people and I like hanging out with people and I like the social aspect of climbing and I like being able to have this activity to do together and to challenge yourself with and so being able to like go to another country and have an automatic friend because you're like both have climbing in common was really motivational for me personally and kind of my interest in why I started getting involved in stuff with GCI so I'm not like a super strong climber by any mm -hmm. means but I love the challenge and I love being a part of the social aspect and I've done like 
an adult climbing team, which was super fun. So I graduated grad school in 2019 and joined an adult climbing team. And that's when like climbing basically became this really large and important part of my life. And I started doing my own kind of international climbing work, met Veronica, met Scott and met Ludovine. And then we together kind of started the Global Climbing Initiative as you know it today. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on our, our um, GCI conversation sure. a little bit longer. Um, that's really why we're here. But um, now I'm, I'm, you know, the tangent king. So um, what's, a, what's an adult climbing team? <laughs> <laughs> so I live in Seattle. I live like right next to the Seattle Bouldering Project. And so they used to have these like adult climbing teams. So they would encourage adults to join a team where they would train you. Um, so it happened in the fall. I think they had it like spring and fall, but I did it in the fall where you would meet together. We met the group that I did it with. We met Monday and Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. at the gym. <laughs> okay. And we climbed from 6 to 8 at the gym. And then we like all got together. Like I still hang out with these people and still climb with these people. Um, and it's been, I don't know, 2019. So years later. Um, and we would climb Monday, Wednesday morning. And then we'd all meet together on Saturday morning and climb again. And then we like prepped for like Seattle Bouldering Project has like a competition in November. And so people would go to like different local competitions and then we all kind of prepped for that competition. And that was my first ever like bouldering competition. And it was so much fun. I had an absolute blast. I am a very competitive person. So <laughs> I really liked the tons of people there. So much energy, so much competition. Um, yeah, like very highlight of my like climbing life. And then COVID and all that stuff got shut down. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I I was just curious about it because I mean I live in this place with this little tiny climbing gym that's kind of relatively new, and that sounds nice. This idea of like yeah, motivating each other too. I think like the six a.m. thing. Like oh my I gosh, do that unless <laughs> I, I would I never somebody. wake up that early if it yeah, wasn't unless important. someone was counting on me to be there, right? And like <laughs> totally. oh, if I don't show up, they're gonna give me shit next week, so I better go. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of thing. And and I also want to put a sort of point on what you said about the travel, which we've talked about here before, and that idea of being able to dip into a community so easily that, that you have this thing in common with. And, and I always remember like even pre-internet, you know, you could still do that. You just had to sort of find, it was a little bit harder to find them. But once you did, you know, my parents being kind of like, you know, the sort of boomers that grew up a certain way and, and, their idea of travel is so much different than mine. And, and right away they were just always like, what do you mean? You're just going to show up and where are you going to go? I'm like, I'm not sure yet. I just got to find out who's there. And like, th it just like blew their minds. And and the thing that's like, people don't understand is it's not just like, you know, you have someone to go to dinner with or like, it's like th that person is going to be like, no, sleep on my floor. Like, mm -hmm. do you have somewhere to stay? Like, you you know everything eat my food sleep on my floor like whatever you need uh, do you have a car am i gonna you know what i mean they it's like this wild thing where they it's just common to give everything you know mm -hmm. and I, I just love it um so much and i'm glad that early on in your career you sort of found that and the internet helps certainly oh, yeah. these days instagram facebook that. are like the easiest ways to connect with people yeah. internationally but yeah my first ever interaction was in indonesia i have a best friend who lived in Indonesia for several years. And so I would go and visit her and I was getting into outdoor climbing and I was like, well, I, I want to climb. Like I'm, I'm here. I wonder if people climb. And so I like found some guy on Instagram and messaged him and was like, Hey, can I, I see you're a climber. Can I come with you? And he just happened to be like a small gym owner and also a crag developer. And so 
we went to the gym one day and I hung out with all these Indonesian climbers who like are smoking like a pack of cigarettes a day and climbing. They had this gym where the they like had bolted the ceiling of the gym. And so these guys would climb up the walls and then they would lead climb the ceiling, get to the end and then unclip and lead climb all the way back down all while having had just like smoking all day. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so impressed. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to be like, they're, they're going to stop somewhere in the middle. Of, like, you know, <laughs> no, no, I don't I, think they, they, they didn't lead out the roof with a cig in their mouth and like, come yeah, hopefully you're not impressed enough to uh, start a pack a day habit though, right? No, no, okay, I'm yeah. a nurse, can't do that. <laughs> hey, I, I have stories from, I was in the hospital when I was in eighth grade and, and, uh, so like that would have been like early 80s and uh, definitely nurses and doctors were smoking right there in the hospital so oh yeah i worked <laughs> at a hospital in jordan yeah. for a period of time and they right. like they would smoke right outside the surgery ward you're like you're doing surgery like literally <laughs> 10 feet away and everyone's just smoking a cigarette in the break room you're like that's cool fine. That's fine. Uh, Prerna, again, we'll get to this other thing in a second. Um, But what what was your landing like in the States? I mean, we talk about us going to other countries and, and, um, you know, and especially I've found like in these places with with small or kind of like, um, again, nascent climbing communities, Indonesia would probably be a place like that. Not only do you get invited in, but they're like just amped to show you what they have and like and knowing that you know we're from the states with this like ancient relatively ancient climbing community you know 50 60 years old um there there, we we come with like okay we've got this sort of certifiable you know expertise that they're interested in um what was it like the other way around um who did you connect with and and what was your acceptance into the community that's gonna be the entire podcast for me Because it's like, you know, I I, I did that, but in multiple crags and it's been just so different and unique in each place. And also very, like I learned so much about myself, but I'll start from the beginning. I think when I was planning this trip and I was like, "Uh, okay, so four months in the US and I have an idea of like what state that I want to be in, which was mostly decided by which GCI member <laughs> lived there and because you know I, I kind of did need that um, pillow to have like to lean on because it w- I was a little intimidated in the beginning of my trip uh, and planning to just climb with people as I met them I didn't really like look up mounted project and know oh, this is the route I want to do and every time I arrived in a place and people asked me so what is your style that was actually the first question and I was like you know, we climb whatever's there and I don't have a style and I'm, I've like, I've never had the option of choosing a style. So um, it was interesting to find out that steep Red River Gorge climbing is not my style. <laughs> but I, did I enjoy it and did I grow like <laughs> learning how to move through it? Absolutely. And uh, it was a lot of finding people as I went and kind of vibing with them because I, I'm just like not a big planner and I'm more of a go with the flow person. And because, I, you know, it's hard to deal with expectations. Then if I've planned something, then I want it really bad. But when I don't know what I want, I'll take it all. And um, it's I was very fortunate to kind of find the, you know, little crews here and there 
people have been absolutely giving. And I think that's also because, like you said, the climbing folk are just so, you know, giving in nature in that sense. And everyone's stoked for you. It was unique coming from India in the sense that everyone like climbs here. And I'm not used to just meeting everyone and they know everything about climbing. Like they know how to belay and, and you know, you just, oh, hey, you want to climb? Okay. And then you're like belaying this person or getting belayed by them. And it's like really fast. So I had a little bit of a cultural lag where I'm like, oh, okay, we don't really like have to know each other really well to like climb together. And there were people that I connected with that I climbed with. And there were people that I didn't really get the chance to do that because, you know, they were climbing or I was. <laughs> so we weren't really chatting. So, but but still, like, it's kind of <laughs> cool that these things can coexist. I am definitely a people person as well. And connection means a lot to me. So when I look back, my climbing, uh, the most fun moments were when I was also like, you know, hanging out with this person in a non-climbing format. And that uh, that was important. Yeah, that that adds the fun to the climbing for me because um, I was I was out to like really grow in all of these like places that I went and I was trying to climb, push my um, limits because also it's a, every month, every mid month, it's a new crag, it's new rock. I have to decide if I want to wear my clown shoes or my tight shoes. It's a difficult decision to make. <laughs> and I just uh, threw myself out there, trusted mm, a lot of you know the people and and I'm going to be able to go back in one piece. I think that's a success. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're getting you guys' background, but it's all building to this this uh program that you're both a part of, the Global Climbing Initiative. And you know, the reason I wanted to ask you all those questions is cuz I think, you know, you guys' interests and background that it all comes together in this thing. Um you said you your people people people, people persons. Um, you both have, you know, have a pretty deep background in, in several types of climbing, um, in, in different styles and mountaineering and, and cragging and maybe not as much bouldering, but, and then also that you love travel and you love these communities around the world. So it's all like adding up to this global climbing initiative, um, which is kind of why you ended up on the show. So let's talk a little bit about that program. The Global Climbing Initiative was started initially as like a research organization through Veronica was a grad student at Yale. And so she wanted to study the history of climbing and how it was developing around the world. Um, And then, you know, I told you like Scott and Ludovine and I kind of joined that party. And when all of us joined together, we each kind of brought a piece of the puzzle to it. And so basically our mission statement is that we look to equip growing climbing communities around the world with knowledge and resources. That's like kind of the short end of what we accomplished. But we do that specifically by investing in climbing leaders. Um, and so Karen is a climbing ambassador with GCI, and she is obviously a climbing leader that we invest in. And this whole trip has been a great example of her leadership, both for her climbing community in India, um, but also for female climbers as well as BIPOC climbers. Um, there's a lot of examples that she can kind of be a part of. And so we want to invest in people like Karina, both for her own growth as a climber, but also for the impact that she can have on climbing communities that she's involved in yeah what does that mean to invest you know yeah um, i mean let let me like literally like what happens what transfers yeah i think it's dynamic so investing is really like what does a specific community need so i originally met prana and she got involved with gci because she's involved with claw which is climb like a woman in india 
So you interviewed Gowrie um, in the past and Gowrie and Perna both together um, with three other women lead CLAW. And so they reached out to us a little over two years ago um, for some mentorship as they developed their organization. So I've been meeting with them on a semi-regular basis for about two years, helping them work through kind of like organizational development, you know, clarifying their mission, their vision, their goals. So like investing is that like relational aspect of like, what does this community need? And then like, what can we deliver based on the resources that we have? And so we kind of deliver through like sort of three avenues. We have gear distribution. So we give them gear, like you actually need gear. Here you go. We do like leadership training, which is kind of this mentorship of like, you know, what practical skills do you need to run your your group or your organization? Um, and then we do like training. So this can be maybe safety training, um, like SPI training, like Farina came here and got SPI training. We'll be doing a training course in Kenya in 2023. You know, maybe you need help learning how to develop routes in a gym. Maybe you need help developing routes outside. Maybe you need, you know, wilderness medicine training. So like we will connect experts in those areas with the community and help provide that training. Basically, it's what does a community need and we'll go as as deep as they need us to go. Prerna, let me ask you the, a question that maybe, you know, is the perspective of, of being on the, the investee side of these things where, where you, you originally got in touch with um, GCI or whoever did to uh, try to help you guys along. And I asked Gowrie this a little bit too, like, what do you see just personally as the benefits of, you know, a program like CLAW or, you know, whatever else is going on around the world with, with GCI, you know, Climbing to us is extremely important. You know, it's it's sort of life changing in this this very kind of internal way for me over the years. But it didn't. Um, but coming from a, a community where again you're bringing women in India into this, um, you're bringing people from from different walks of life that probably never would have found it on their own. What's your pitch for why climbing? Like why? is climbing so important when maybe you could take these resources and, and do something else to improve their lives, even on a very basic level with, um, you know, the poor communities in places like India. Um, well, let me say this. I, I just had a conversation with, um, Alex Honnold that'll come out on the run out. And, uh, Andrew brought up like, you know, doing a solar project for this young climber in, um, on the West bank in Palestine and, you know, Alex was like, yeah, you know, that sounds great, but, you know, maybe there's a resource they need more than solar, like, you know, proper walls and maybe some running water. I mean, it can go as deep as that for somebody like on the West Bank um, living in in a community there. Like, you know, he had the, the foresight to say, like, why are we jumping right to solar when there's like, these more basic needs? So um, I guess that's part of the question. I've always asked these organizations, like, why jump to climbing when there maybe is something else going on um prior to that or yeah that's a great question um and especially for india where there is so much systemic injustice as well as need for development i think that climbing is a means to break barriers for women in india and like that is what it has been for me and for each other member of the claw team for personal journeys because we're still you know globally too but especially growing up in a culture where women are not encouraged and girls are not encouraged to be risk takers and to 
put themselves out there to move their bodies in these weird positions even there is just so much apprehension and self doubt that women enter an outdoor space with if at all they do and there's also a lack of w- female leadership so i think that for a lot of us it was the need for it came because we didn't have any mentors who were women who were like climbing really hard we wanted to climb really hard because all the boys around us were climbing really hard and that is what you know at that moment climbing meant like you it was something that was difficult and it made you try really hard and we wanted to do it and not having anybody for me was like a big you know gap and it's i do still feel like even in india it's a very privileged sport and when i say india it's a huge country like i can't even speak for the entirety of it because there's people climbing in different parts of the country through different means their journeys have all been so different but i do know that we are all as women were definitely seen through a certain lens in india and i really want to shatter that lens and i think that climbing is definitely one of those movements that you know you just see a female, like a woman doing it in a gym and i can see the look on like some of the newbie guys and girls they're just like whoa it's and at the same time like from the claw experiences we've seen how difficult it is to be able to be vulnerable through climbing and i mean we've had you know in our debriefs just like waterworks all over the place because women have not had the chance to be in a space where they're actually allowed to be themselves where they're encouraged or they're just like you know you can just do whatever you want to be to have that space make whatever you want of the sport and you know the aspect of having fun and not performing is like there's such a thick shell that we've got because you know when we think of stigmas there's social stigmas that are brought put on by society and then there's some that we have within ourselves self constructed and breaking those is the harder bit and climbing helps us do that Danny from your point of view and again you know I'll just mention Alex one more time is that he you know he has this this initiative for solar around the world but he's also very aware of you know this kind of window dressing on sort of programs like this of like you know we come in and we get some shots of us putting solar on and then you know who knows if that solar is still working you know years later and and climbing is has been fraught with this kind of thing of of people going in and building schools and you know the himalayas and now they're like basically you know a few years later there's sheep in the school and it's just a shelter that the people use because the the resources to continue were never added or they were added for a short time or whatever so um when you're going into these communities not you know if we we can move on from from claw but um in other places you'd mentioned kenya like what are your I guess I have two questions and I'll start with the one like what are your sort of um red flags or god not not really like your guidelines to make sure that this this is something the community wants needs and um and it's not just like going to be this moment of of getting a few kids on a on a rock and then everybody leaves and that's the last we ever hear of it kind of thing. Well, to answer your question I might back up a minute um okay, just to kind of it. give some of my own personal like philosophy background. Um, yeah, that'd be great. But so I, I know I, you're an aid worker around the world too. Yeah. Prior to so, this, so 
Yeah. So I've worked in healthcare for over 11 years. And a part of that has been in healthcare development as well as humanitarian aid. So I have experienced a lot of the things you're talking about where people are coming in to try to solve problems and they're doing it super poorly. Um, and I had a like real um, earth shattering experience, I guess. So I worked in Ghana on and off for three years um, in a project that I think is how most projects should be run. Um, and I was just lucky to get a, become a part of this experience. I worked with a doctor in Flint, Michigan, who is Ghanaian in descent. And he had started a project with the University of Michigan and a university in Kumasi. And they started creating systems to train doctors and nurses in emergency medicine. Um, and so the goal wasn't to like bring in a vaccine or to bring in a, a like a, a thing that would one day run out of supply, right? The goal was to actually train these professionals to be independent leaders in healthcare, specifically around emergency medicine. And so that created a framework that I have approached like everything else with my life with, because the idea is like, how do we equip people to become their own leaders, their own change makers, their own whatever. Um, and I think so much, we could get into a long conversation that we won't get into about development, but so much of that is not about equipping. It's about like giving resources for short-term gain versus like actually creating leaders who are independent and autonomous um, and capable of doing that. And so one of the reasons why I like working in the climbing field specifically is because as much as it has its own problems and it is a microcosm of a bigger system that exists within each country and within our globalized world, it is so nascent as a sport. It's so nascent in these communities that it doesn't come with the same rules. And so you don't have these thing that's like inundated with rules and barriers that you can't create change. So like we all know the humanitarian aid system needs to change. So I worked with forced displacement, uh, people experiencing forced displacement. And there's so many things about that system that needs to change, but it's so big and it's so kind of set up in a specific way that it's very hard to create change in that field. And I think that climbing gives us an opportunity to create a microcosm of change that potentially can have these ripple effects. So are we taking care of poverty? No. Are we addressing food insecurity? No. Are we addressing lack of healthcare? No, we're not addressing those things and we don't claim to be. But what we are doing is hopefully creating a community where they're empowered and they within their own community can decide where do we want our community to go from here? Who do we want to become? What kind of people do we want to be? And they can feel empowered by having the space of all these people being together to accomplish that. And then that can have ripple effects in their community. So Karina was talking about, you know, women feeling comfortable in their body, feeling comfortable in outdoor activity. Like what kind of impact is that going to have in their workplace? What kind of impact is that going to have in their family? So like, we're not claiming to like know all those pieces or is this the most important thing that needs to be addressed in these communities? No, it probably isn't. But it's something that communities are asking for. So I would say like to answer your original question of like, what is a red flag? Well, A, we're never going to work with community where there aren't already climbing leaders there. Like we're not going to go in and say like, oh, you, we have to like create this whole space for you if people don't already want to show interest. So I think, you know, there has to be someone in that community that says, I'm going to own this for this community for this time period. And I'm invested in creating other people who are going to own this with me. And so, you know, Climbing Life Kenya is a great example. Climbing has a little bit more of a history in Kenya than it does in India, like a longer history. And there are people who have been climbing, but there is a lot of like racial in inequity in that community as well. And so having like indigenous black Kenyans climbing is not a super common thing that happens there. And so 
Climbing Life Kenya, their goal is to make climbing accessible for everyone and to teach and perpetuate best practices of climbing in Kenya. And so we support them in that because Liz and Niamzi, who are the leaders there, they that's what they want. So we're like, cool, we're going to come alongside you for as long as you guys want us to, to help you reach your goal so that you guys can be autonomous and independent. And same with Claw. I think Climb Malawi is kind of like a unique example. So I don't know um, if you've heard that story, but Tyler Algio, who works for us now, um, used to live in Malawi with his wife. And so he started climbing there. Um, and he actually kind of like started climbing for, again, like indigenous black Malawians and then created a climbing gym and then kind of grew these leaders from people who were really interested in climbing. And so now like, you know, Tyler and his wife had to leave with the pandemic and so now the Malawian community owns this climbing gym and they're setting the routes and they're climbing and they're wanting to bolt, you know, new routes out in the country and do all these different things. And so I think you can have this opportunity to potentially impact so much more than just climbing. Um, but the goal is that climbing doesn't have all the rules that some other things might have. You know, if you introduce climbing into a community where maybe women aren't allowed to do as much outdoor activity but you don't know what climbing is, it's like, well, the rules don't apply here because no one knows what the rules are yet. Um, and so you get the opportunity to let communities make their own rules. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, you, you're, you're hitting on so many things I, I find positive about. I mean, again, you've, you've got poverty, you've got inequality, you've got these gigantic things that seem insurmountable and, you know, even climate change, like it, it shuts us down. It's like we, we feel just, totally impotent to do anything and so it's easier just to go on with your life and you know it's fascinating that yeah you get to go into this this thing that's new and it's not even it's not even a problem you're not even like do you know what i mean like you're not you're not rolling up against this giant already existing problem you have this opportunity to create whatever it is and whatever it becomes we know that it can be positive and we know that it can have these ripple effects and no they're not necessarily quantifiable but do you know what I mean? Like there's, a, there's this kind of fun and, and positive thing in the fact that you're not actually trying to move a mountain, you know, to use a, a bad metaphor and pun for climbing. But, you know, I, I just I, I just think it can be effective. I mean, you guys are a small group of people. You're not this monstrous NGO or anything like that. And, you know, in climbers, it's weird how we can we can both believe in the positivity of climbing and how great it is, but we can have this weird cynical side of us to like, why don't people don't need climbing? They need food or whatever. You know, it's like we can and have they like, do I don't need know, food, both things. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, perhaps it's all connected though. I mean, mm -hmm. you, we just talked about this weird support system that we get as we go out into the climbing community. And if you're, if you've created this world, you know, in a place like, Malawi that's a, a climbing community and and within that climbing community one family needs food I bet you the rest of the climbing community comes comes to the table for that you know just the way we were talking about it does for us when we travel the world yeah I mean I think it's about like what culture you want to create and like supporting some of those values and I think I think a lot of people in the US would say well climbing has a lot of its own cultural problems or you're experiencing maybe potentially the problems of our greater system in the US inside climbing right you know mm -hmm. there's not it's not always a safe place for BIPOC climbers or LGBTQ climbers or even female climbers so like people are trying to create that space for themselves and advocate for themselves but I would also argue that like you actually have a space to 
advocate for these communities in the microcosm of climbing that you might not find in your greater society. Um, and so I think that you can decide as a community what kind of culture you want to make. And that's sort of what Law and Climbing Life Kenya, Climb Malawi, kind of what they're doing. They're saying like, well, we want to create a safe space for women or we want to create a safe space for everyone, including like Black, Indigenous Kenyans. Like we want to make them feel comfortable and feel empowered. And you have no idea what's going to happen because of that. But you hope that you're giving them these values of like caring for their neighbor or caring for their environment, right? Like we kind of want to say like client, the climbing community has some positive values that it can impart to, again, the greater community, which is like environmental care um, or, you know, maybe inclusivity of all kinds of climbers, regardless of ability or skill or grade or, you know, whatever. And if we can continue to perpetuate those values in a hopeful kind of way, maybe we can make the world a better place. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it. Yeah, obviously these things always have to like, you know, unfortunately, we end up talking about these sort of cliches and things like that because it's, you know, things are sort of cliche because they can be true at times. You know, that's why I re repeat them all over. Um, but Prerna, uh, I'll ask you this or, you know, referring back to my interview with, with Gowrie, one of the things that we talked about um, was that ability, you know, with, a, again, a young climbing community, a small climbing community, relatively speaking, you can sort of start on the, the right foot. You know, and, and you talked about problems within the global climbing community, the American or uh, climbing, North American climbing community, whatever, you know, coming mostly from just things in our culture, right? They, they leak into climbing, whether we like it or not. And just in the last 20 years, let's say, or 10 years, even like the position of women in, in climbing, the climbing community in the United States has changed incredibly, you know, as someone who's lived through it, it's astounding the change actually. But you guys have this ability to start from that, you know, from that foot already without, you know, try to, you know, we didn't think about it 20 years ago. Actually, we thought about it a lot only because we were bummed there weren't any women around. And I say we meaning we as in me. Um, we're like, where are they? They're not here in Indian Creek. I'll tell you that right now. Um, but anyway, a whole other thing. But yeah, it's like it's cool because you can just say, "All right, this is how we're doing things," and we don't have this this tradition, good and bad, the bad tradition to start from. And and I think I joke with Gowrie how like, you know, you guys have, you know, some of the best climbers, no matter what, are women in already in in India, and it's and you guys are are leading with this incredible example of like, you know the the dudes who are getting into climbing have to look to you for how to do it in a way and it's it's really cool like that you're kind of calling the shots i mean you know i know it's not all rainbows and unicorns <laughs> entirely about you know the the gender inequality but you're in this position that that women are, have just arrived at in a lot of ways in other climbing communities yeah. around the world um that's definitely a superpower we discovered when you know, when we started, we were like, we had friends who were like, oh, but like, why a women's space only? And now they're like sending all of the women they know to this women only space because, you know, this, I think they, it's not that they, un, they might not understand it entirely yet, because I think that to remove gender inequality and I mean, <laughs> You know, just saying it, my shoulders feel heavy from the weight of it. <laughs> but like, 
I'm not going to do it, okay? But and neither do I expect, you know, this next person, uh, this person next to me. But we have to work on both sides. Uh, and in so in India, we're not even like, you know, talking about non-binary folk yet. And it's just men and women. And that's still a big, there's still a big gap there. Uh, mm-hmm. But we don't have the resources yet to work with the guys. And so they're like still at a place where they kind of understand, not entirely, but they're being supportive because they see how things are changing because of this affinity space. At the same time, I do feel like we want like women that come into our space to understand that, you know, the world is not going to be just slamming with women. <laughs> We're not in uh, the Amazonian island yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> <For those. laughs> that could be GCI's next thing, right? You just buy an island somewhere and only women are allowed to climb there. <laughs> yeah. But it's in, so we anyway, need sorry. them knowing that, you know, these are like lessons that you can take. And then when you climb with people, speak up for what you feel is right. And feel free to pass on this uh, education, but it's tricky because no one wants to be educated when they're climbing, right? Uh, they just want to go climbing. And but then this is where the hard right. conversation needs to happen. Where how do how do you know men support women in like a space? And in India, where most of the times the guys are climbing harder and they're climbing shirtless, how do they support? You know, how do they make this space more? Less intimidating. Let's start with that. Forget welcoming. <laughs> um, because it is hard and mm-hmm. you have to like really be brazen about things, but it shouldn't be. Like that's why we want to do claw. We don't want it to be like, oh, right. unless you're a badass woman, you should like, you know, you're not uh, going to be a climber. You know, we want to be like, you be yourself sure. and bring that to climbing. And that needs to become the norm so that everyone gets used to it. I just had a, a funny thought that maybe there could be uh, an offshoot, um, and it would be the the, the GBI, <laughs> which is the Global Bro Initiative. And we'll what we'll do is we'll send bros to your gyms or every gym around the world. Only they'll be good oh. bros. Like the bro will be there. Like he'll be to the he'll be to the other yeah. bros. Like bro, don't spray beta at her. Okay, that's not how we do things. Or bro, put your shirt on. Like, bro, this is, you know what I mean? But anyway, um, I'm just working on my head just now. Um, we just send, you know, like Tyler or whoever from the gym and he goes to the gym in India for like a month or two and just, just you know, uh, schools all the bros and how to act uh, properly. So <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, I don't have to leave that in there, but um, anyhow, um I mean, I'm joking, but the reason we say that is because, like, yeah, we have these cultures that are kind of in place and we have to, like, chip away at them. And, you know, I think, Danny, you mentioned, like, climbing being sort of this little microcosm or whatever of larger problems and larger good things as well. But, you know, and that's just the thing in the United States you know, our larger culture leaks into climbing and we, we, you know, we fight against it. And I think in some ways it's a little bit better community in terms of, of LGBTQ people and things like that, but it's not, not perfect. And India I'm sure is like, you're just saying, it's like you're, you're fighting this uphill battle for a long time uh, against a, a larger culture. Let me ask you this, Danny, and you know, 
I don't want to focus on any horrible failures or anything else, but tell me a little bit about like some of the common, you know, roadblocks you've, you've run into, or if there's been a place where, um, you know, things just didn't go or maybe kind of came to a halt or something like that because of, of running into whatever roadblocks you might find, um, culturally resource wise or anything else. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons learned. Yeah, there's so much to learn. Yeah, I think, lessons learned is actually a better way to put it than yeah, what I was just saying. Yeah, I think part of it is like, you know, like you've talked about, there are these communities like Kenya or like India or like Malawi or, I mean, pretty much any nascent climbing community in the world, name it, and then name their ability to get climbing resources. You can't or you can, but they're not as accessible or they're very expensive or, you know, there are so many barriers to getting gear. So you're like, cool, let's invest in this climbing community. But by the way, you don't have any way to continue to get gear. So like, how are we going to continue to invest in you when your ropes go bad or your carabiners go bad or like we need to somehow get gear to you. Um, And so I think like what we're currently doing right now is awesome, but it's a temporary solution to a long-term problem, right? Like right now there are no brands selling gear to Kenyans or Malawians. There are none maybe decathlon occasionally, (laughs) um, which is based in France. But so there are no like large climbing brands like actively selling gear in these communities. And so our temporary solution has been, okay, well, we're going to ask for gear donations. And then we're going to take that gear individually by getting volunteers to take that gear as part of their luggage, because that's expensive to ship it, to bring it into the country so that you guys can have gear. But that's a solution for like one to two years, right? Like that's not going to solve your Mm -hmm. problem, which is really that you don't have access to gear. Um, And so I think it's not like currently a super big problem, but it's this thing that we're constantly wrestling with. Like to me, that's a short-term solution. Is it good for you right now? Absolutely. But like, where are you going to be in two to three years? Are we just going to keep doing this, doing gear distribution forever and ever? I mean, I hope not. I hope that brands see these nascent climbing communities as investments that they are willing to to do, or maybe, you know, these local communities start creating their own. I don't remember who it is, but somebody started creating a crash pad. I can't remember if it was in India or Kenya, because it was too expensive to like buy crash pads from other countries. So they're like, well, we're just going to make our own. And they did. And so, you know, there's different communities like that, where they're becoming creative. Um, There's a girl in India who makes chuck bags out of old t-shirts. So I think those communities can also become their own solutions. But in the meantime, we have to figure out I heard the term once and I really like this. It's like transitional justice. This is not the end goal, but it's hopefully a space where we can begin to kind of bridge that gap of accessibility. And so it's transitional justice solutions. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, I've heard so many stories and they get told around because they're kind of cool in their own way of like, well, that, you know, and then this kid showed up and he like sent 511 in his, in his, you know, Crocs. tennies or his sandals <laughs> or his Crocs or whatever. And it's like, well, that's super cool, except for like, dude needs some climbing shoes, you know, like they're going to see the shoes, they're going to want the shoes They're you know, they know that it's holding them back if they're real climbers and, and you're creating real climbers. And what I mean by that is that they, you know, they have these goals in their head. It's, it wasn't just this one-off thing and, and they're going to dream about, you know, a sweet pair of solutions because that's what they're going to find out about. And it's like, you need to get, you need to move on from those cool stories of like the kids on their their, you know, the rope they found in their tennis shoes and through some, you know, junky chain link that they found or whatever goes along with all those stories. I don't know if you've ever heard stories. I lived in Vietnam for a short period of time. And there, a lot of Mm -hmm. people like to climb shoeless. So they just climb barefoot. 
So while I was there, yeah. I was like, I got to learn to climb barefoot. This is the thing to do. <laughs> um, and it's actually quite fun when you're like deep water soloing and you don't have to jump in the water and get your shoes soaking wet. Um, yeah. So I think like people definitely come up with creative solutions that like, who knows, maybe that will lead to new styles or new ways of being. But I think my biggest concern is safety. Like we're asking people to get on these rocks and to do these things. You want them to do it safely. Um, sure. So like, how do we continue to promote safety by giving them those resources and then accessibility of like, is this financially possible, you know, to be able to participate in a sport like this is expensive in the U.S., let alone in another country where people make way less money um, and price, you know, or more because of the import costs and things like that. I mean, I can talk endlessly about how difficult it is to get gear. It's like, you know, you're waiting for somebody to come from the U.S. and you, US and you pounce on the opportunity when you find it. But then you, you know that you have to share that space with like all your friends because each one of you wants like maybe one or two things. And then you got the wrong size Sportivas. Yeah. So like, you're like, fuck. <laughs> it's, oh my gosh, the number of shoes I mean, that's the worst. Resell. That sucks in the States. And you're like, I can just get another pair. But you're like, oh, what did I, how did I, why did I size these down so far? Anyway. I sorry. mean, <laughs> it's like, this is the first time that I actually tried on a shoe before buying it. Yeah. In the US. Mm-hmm. I've been climbing 10 years. And all of my friends are like, hey, can you try this shoe for me? Can you try that shoe for me? Can you tell me what it feels like? And, you know, we just like read 100,000 reviews and order our shoes and right. still get it wrong. So it can be frustrating. But that's just something that is happening right now. And it's fine. Well, anyway, uh, we're moving story. our way up around it. Right. But one of the things that, uh, like, I did, I just did my SPI. And, um, you know, the Grigri is like a main device that we use for belaying and for tethering it's like um you know how you anchor yourself to the rope and i was like um and so you know when we're talking about safety like danny said and the spi is like the foundational the basic course you know how to move on a single pitch terrain and i don't know enough people in india who can like who have a degree I mean, I know that a lot of people, most people use an ATC device or even like a lot of people use a figure eight still. So I saw that, you know, gap there where I was like, oh, this is a given. We have to have a Greek. And I had to come here and borrow one and get mine and then get used to like just pulling on the plastic handle and, you know, (laughs) going over the edge. But we're still making do with whatever we have and keeping it safe. And it's the standard of safety that is spoken of so highly over here. Like, I remember someone saying that, oh, if you are not certified by the MG, are you even a guide? Well, if you're making money from guiding, you're a guide, right? And um, it's it's difficult to meet the standard because it is in a different setting completely. So um, while I am learning all these new tricks and skills and putting them in my bag that I want to take back to India... I have so much appreciation for what is already happening in India and uh, the way people are using whatever is available and making the most of it. Yeah, it's fa- I mean, it's fascinating you, just listening to you talk because I guided uh, for seven years before the AMGA existed and um, there was no certification process other than whatever the company you were working for did. And, and actually the the ironic part of it all is that there was a lot of pushback against the the beginnings of the AMGA because all these guiding companies, you know, RMI up on Rainier, I mean, these these ancient comparatively guiding companies were like, 
what, you guys are going to come in here and tell us how we're supposed to guide? Like, who are you and why are we? And they wanted money. You want money to tell <laughs> us how to guide? Like, so anyway, it existed before that. Um, and it also, I, ex- I climbed uh, very safely for probably 15 years before the Grigri was invented. Um, and you'll talk to a billion, and there's still guys that won't even use the Grigri. Um, I disagree with that at this point. But but anyway, but yeah, so I mean, there, you're, you're just going to have to kind of like roll your dials back and, and realize that there is safe ways to climb long before some of this stuff existed. And, you know, the ATC is a perfectly safe device if used properly. And the world will not end if you don't do a quad yeah. or two bolts and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's cool. And, and, and someone, you know, a part of the breadth of the experience you got even in the last four months here on the different rock, different styles, multi-pitch, sport, crack, single pitch is going to inform, you know, how you take that stuff you learned as a guide and adapt it to, to what you need to do. Um, cause that's what you had to do for the last four months. It sounds like is adapt every time you showed up at a new place. Yeah. Brian is the queen of flexibility and adaptability. <laughs> we talked a lot in here about sustainability with, uh, with your program. And again, you know, I don't care what it, I don't care if it's this podcast, like sustaining any sort of program, any sort of endeavor, uh, in the long term is really the, it's the crux of, of life, you know, and, and where are these things 10 years from now at 20 years from now? So, you know, what are your thoughts on that, Danny, the framework that you guys have in place for uh, um, not just in these communities, but just your program in general? Um, are you able to do it while maintaining, you know, a career all those things, you know, that become part of it. Like it's easy to volunteer for something for a little while until life comes crashing in. And I, I, you know, you're, I don't know if you're a paid position or not, or how much of your life it is. Um, but talk a little bit about that, like sustaining it, not just as a program, but also for yourself, um, and your involvement, the both of you. Sure. I would like to posit a different word actually, before I get started, which is, uh, like, I don't know if you've heard about regenerative agriculture, but we have recently been using the term regenerative instead of sustaining because our goal is okay. to sustain a current model of like our environmental model or our injustice, economic and social model. Our goal isn't to say sustain those. Our goal is to actually like make them better and make them healthier for everyone involved. So like if we had more time to talk, you would hear me use the word health and well-being to pretty much describe everything in life. Um, I think we have like, more time to talk. <laughs> If you um, like my bad background, well, the, uh, Prerna might freeze to death. I think in, <laughs> out in this van, <laughs> she's in a van in a now windy, cold Moab. Um, anyway, continue. Sorry. No. Yeah. So I think, like, I think one of the most important things is how do we create total well-being for individuals, for communities, for our Earth? Um, and I don't think it's sustaining where we currently are. How do we actually regenerate that? And so I. We kind of at GCI use regenerative agriculture as this like philosophy model of what we're trying to do, both for ourselves as individuals and for the work we do. So how do we do that as like individuals? So most of us are volunteer positions right now. Um, We do have uh, our ED as a paid position. Um, And so like there is a lot of work-life balance, but we've been doing this for three years. Um, And most of us are aiming as we continue to tell people what this is like we are at the nexus of international community development and climbing which is a weird thing so if you talk to international community development people they're like oh yeah but climbing like why climbing why are you using climbing as this community development tool and then climbers are like what's community development about (laughs) and so you know we're finding ourselves having to explain these things to people to help them understand like actually these things 
really overlap beautifully. Um, and the capacity to do community development through the lens of climbing is, I think, really novel and has so much beautiful potential, um, kind of like we talked about earlier. And so I think as people begin to catch that model, the goal is to continue to invest in that, both for our own individual well-being. So we really talk a lot about, you know, we care so much for these communities, but if we don't care for ourselves as an organization, we can't continue that work. And so how do we prioritize our organization at being this healthy organization? Like, how do we take the things we've all learned from the jobs we've had in the past about like ways we didn't like to interact with managers or ways that we felt like there was unhealthy culture within the organization? And so we actually really focus on creating a healthy culture within our organization as the foundation of the work that we do so that we know that we're sending healthy people out into these communities to perpetuate that versus perpetuating unhealthy cultural dynamics that they're taking with them into these other dynamics that they're creating. Um, And so I think when I think about regenerative culture creation, it starts with GCI and the work that we do on ourselves as individuals, on our organization, and then in the relationships we have internationally. And then we encourage the organizations we work with to continue that within their own community. Um, And Claw is another really great example. Like we've been having conversations with them about how do you guys become the healthiest organization you can be as individuals where everyone feels like they're a healthy participant in this organization so that they can continue to perpetuate that in their community. And it's, again, that community model of we can affect this microcosm. What are the potential impacts in all these other avenues of our lives? That was very well said, Danny. I think that there's so much to learn for us from the way we see how GCI is working and working within themselves and the amount of emphasis they lay on having a healthy relationship with within the organization. And that's something that we have adopted uh, in CLAW. And like, for me, I think I've always just been like somebody who wants to do whatever the hell I want to do. And so being part of an organization means I have to anchor myself to it, to it, to a certain extent. And a lot of times for me, like uh, that, you know, has felt like, oh, is it taking away from my me time? Because I still want to do whatever the hell I want to do and not be accountable, you know, like not be accountable for a few months because I disappear and I want to be able to do that. I I don't want to be an adult. (laughs) But at the same time, we've just come to such a good place now with Claw that I feel comfortable to convey to my team members. Uh, And I see us growing in such a way that we can take on, you know, tasks for one another. And we are creating space for each of us to be ourselves as well as contributors to the community that we're creating. Because I don't think I would be stoked to do that work if I wasn't doing things for me as well. And like, I think... To a certain extent, I also like sometimes I get really wrapped up with community and I'm like, what is the community? I go in this existential crisis and I'm like, is it even working? What the hell am I doing? I don't go collecting trash every other day. I don't volunteer for that kind of stuff. But then I feel like me giving my time and focus to like climbing and trying to do things that haven't been done before is also me doing something important. And I value it without feeling guilty about it. That's like a good place that I have come to. Um, Danny, one more nuts and bolts thing. And, and maybe, we can, you know, this might help help you along the way is, you know, you just talked about sustaining it. 
uh, sorry, you just talked about um, regenerating uh, GCI as as an organization. But what about the financial um, part of this whole thing? Um, you know, it's a volunteer organization, but you need the money to hopefully pay more members um, sooner or later, and also running the programs, getting the gear, sending it over, all that sort of stuff. How do you guys uh, sustain? How do you guys regenerate your coffers when when need be? How do you uh, how do you fund this thing? First and foremost, obviously, one of our largest donors we have a private donor, um, angel investor that has really gotten us off the ground. And so, you know, anonymous shout out to that person, <laughs> but like we wouldn't be able to do this without him. Um, and so that has been really helpful. But we are talking about that, like how do we continue to do this in a way that gives continues to give money without having to always apply for grants or having to apply, ask for donations, because sometimes that money isn't there, you know, talk about the 2008 recession, all of a sudden, all those donations kind of go away. Um, and so how do we, well, make- yeah, it's hard to plan it, it is um, hard to a plan. budget when you're waiting for people to just pop on and give you money. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's understandable. So, yeah. So I think like, I mean, a always donate, but we are open to donations. So I'll just like ask for that to start with. But we are looking into kind of continual models. So um, looking at kind of creating relationships with gyms that can kind of invest in that. We are working on projects around, you know, helping gyms to build relationships with gyms internationally as a way of finding some of that financial support as well. And so we are looking for ways that we're creating that money continuously versus waiting for large donations. But I think any, if you look up any startup, every startup has to start with some large angel investors and then once those things happen, then you can set, show that you have, unfortunately, to use the business term of product, you have a product worth investing in. Um, and then that can continue to create um, additional income. So I hope that yeah, answers you, your you question know, t- without being too specific. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I just, you know, it's, it's, it's just, I think it's more to enlighten people listening as to like, well, where does this happen? And, and how difficult it is to run an organization on donations, because you don't have a budget, you don't know necessarily where the money's coming from like in and you know that's a really difficult thing for a business to and i, to, I think and, as, you, know, you as are well, a business well sense, we yeah. are a nonprofit, but yeah. yes unfortunately yeah, non-profit. even nonprofits have to run like businesses a little bit um yeah and i think it's also we we are specifically in a very unique market where it's both a good thing and a bad thing that the u.s it has so much um like affinity groups coming up and all of these like invest in the community through climbing kind of groups so although mm-hmm. we are unique in the way that we are doing our work, we are not unique in that we are like using climbing as a tool for investing in communities. Um, right. And so I think in the U.S. there is a slightly oversaturated market of people looking to brands to fund them. Um, and so mm-hmm. we're looking for more creative solutions that don't rely singularly on brands, um, although we do work with brands on projects specifically. So brands partner with us for projects um, like the training we're going to be doing in Kenya. Um, in 2023. But for our overhead costs, you know, we have to be more creative than that. We have to look. Well, it's the same problem. I mean, not not to bust on brands, you know, they, they, but that, you know, it's a, it's at least partially a PR move and they want some exposure and then next year they've moved on to something else. So it's, it's also not a way to build a continual necessary, you know, it's like grants or it's the same as a grant. You're going to get it and then it's likely going to go away. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know that there are businesses; they aren't just giving money away for no reason. They want some PR and the and the and sure. the the outcome. So, yeah, I mean, and again, just the more, like I said, enlightening people about who are thinking about this, listening, like how does where does this money come from? Is I mean, it's really the unfortunately, it's the 
it's probably the basis of of a lot of meetings that you guys have you know where is it going to come from next year and next totally. year and, and i think the thing yeah. that you always like you don't realize when you're starting a nonprofit cuz this is the first i've i've been a part of one other nonprofit startup but this is the first nonprofit for many of us to like actually get involved in and to start from the ground up is like you don't really think about you want to you have all these great intentions about we're going to have a positive impact on the world and then you don't really think about like at the end of the day like there are these budgets you got to pay people, you got to pay your taxes, you got to pay all these things. You There's all these pieces of the puzzle that you don't really realize. It's like a kid who wants to be an adult. And then you get there and you're like, well, I got to pay right. for my house and that, where did all these expenses come from? I just want to take some kids climbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think- Can I just do that? And that longer term investment, to like talk about money, like the reality of the situation is like that longer term investment in communities is not flashy. Very few people want to pay for a long-term investment. What they want to pay for is that one-off project that looks really cool. And so convincing mm-hmm. people that the relationship is actually the most important piece of the puzzle is hard. You know, it's very easy to tell people invest in a project about gear distribution or invest in this one training event that's going to happen. But to tell them like, actually, we want you to invest long-term in the relationship that we're building with these communities, because that's what's going to get them to that next level. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you know we changed sustainability to to regenerative and and uh, and like investment is such a tricky word. We actually started on that. I asked you a question very early, like what does it mean to invest in these people? And you know when we talk about finances, investment means people want generally the idea is that you put money in and you get more money back, and that's just not the way these things work. So the investment we're talking about, I mean, I wonder if there was some word out there that would would make you know, a, a more poignant sort of uh, idea I, around, you know, it's just kind of, cause it is, it's like they your angel investor is not like looking at their portfolio every month going like, okay, where's my dividend? Like, where is this going to get me back? You know, it's, it's a whole different idea of investment when it comes to these sorts of programs. Well, and I unfortunately think it's like the good of people's hearts <laughs> that you're kind of counting on. Well, it's that kind of like climate work, change, you know? though. Like we're saying that by mm-hmm. investing in climbing, it's this microcosm of the world that we believe will have positive impacts in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So what you're right. investing in is this idea of, of well-being that we believe that climbing can have a positive emotional, mental, physical mm-hmm. impact on an individual. And then that that individual, by having these improved mental, emotional, physical experiences, are going to have a more positive interaction with their partner, with their family, with their friend. And then by that interaction, you're going to have a more positive community. And I think the um, Mountains Without uh, Beyond Borders is the English name. Um, but there's a community in Monterey, Mexico, and they're seeing this happen. And there's a community in Uganda where they're investing in youth. And by investing in youth, they're seeing positive impacts in the family. The family mm-hmm. dynamic is changing and the involvement of the family in the youth and the support of that whole family is coming because this youth is getting invested in. And that could happen in maybe soccer or football. Like it doesn't have to be just climbing. It just, we happen to be climbers who love climbing and want to use that as the tool to accomplish those things, but they are happening. You know, you're seeing family dynamics change. You're seeing people invest in a future that maybe they didn't have before because they're being invested in to become a guide or they're being invested in um, to become a youth leader or these different pieces. And so when we talk about investment, it's not a financial return. It's like that we believe that by doing this, we're going to see a social, economic, environmental return on the on that. Uh, I wanted to chip in and add to 
since we're talking about funding and when I started this five month long trip uh, in the US and I'm thinking dollars, how many dollars is that? And I was talking to Danny and she's like, mm, yeah, oh, you know, we were calculating a per day expense and it came down to like $50 or something like that with like food and gas. And if I'm climbing every day, staying in like, you know, uh, uh, a camping site or, or an Airbnb or something. And I was like, oh, 30 into that amount into, you know, uh, the number of days I was going to stay was just ridiculously expensive. But that wasn't going to stop me from coming. And uh, the one way in which GCI is unique is that, you know, I had the support to stay in like I had a home in most of the places where I spent a majority amount of time and that. I wouldn't call it investment, but it's the support. And I really felt that. And I think that was like a big tool in me being able to like do this thing. I don't like you, you probably don't see an Indian climber just hanging out in USA crags because, you know, it doesn't make sense economically. It's not if maybe it'll be like a one time trip when we're visiting relatives and we have somebody to stay over and then close to that place there's a climbing crag. But it's still a very big trip to make and to even imagine uh, like my my SPI course scholarship uh, my my flight to get here costed like three four times the amount of that scholarship so you know it doesn't add up I'm a little crazy to be doing this but I wouldn't do it if I didn't have like that kind of support so I knew that okay I I will have a roof over my head and uh, and then just you know being able to take that chance along with that support, that was, that's important. So even though I didn't have like, you know, when we started off, I didn't have like a funding plan, even though we had a leadership fund being put together, it was still in process. And I was like, mm, I don't know if it's going to be enough. But with like this additional support, it has been enough. It's been more than enough. Well, and you've done a lot of work that you didn't even know you were doing. Um, in my my opinion, you know, this is, um, I don't know what else you've done, but you've been on the Power Company podcast. And, and again, like just arriving at the crag and being this ambassador and people, you know, talking to you for an hour about how to pronounce your name. And, you know, I, honestly, like that's that's a lot. That's a lot of positive sort of movement in the world as far as exposing other people to new ideas and, and getting them thinking about, well, yeah, there's, you know, a lot of people that can't get gear in India like to, to go deeper than that or to, to what it takes to be a climber in a, somewhere else. And, you know, you probably got a little tired of it. Like you said, some days you just wanted to go rock climbing, <laughs> but at the same time, it was sort of your job, you know, in, in a way is to be this person uh, showing off uh, what it's like to be an Indian climber. Yeah, absolutely. And Perna did a lot of work for herself and for Claw and also for Pity Darvish's the ice climbing community and festival in India. Every time she went somewhere, she was connecting with brands and connecting with other climbers. And so, you know, we are supporting her in that, but she did the work. She did the legwork of really finding that gear and making those relationships. And Prana is a very outgoing, well-versed um, person, and she can connect with almost anyone. And so, I mean, just applaud her for like all the work that she did for her own community to get them the things they need. Yeah. And, and like uh, you were saying earlier, like this is you know, as you're looking at 50 bucks a day and this, this incredible plane ticket and comparing it to like what people have in India, you know, 
Uh, I'm sure you're like, oh my God, this is this is this opportunity that I don't deserve or, or any of those things. But it's just time to move on from that and realize that every day that you were you were sort of that's my point is you were sort of doing work. Um, just being there at the crag and, and, and having an exciting day and hanging out with your friends afterwards and meeting new friends and it's all part of the game. So as you're, as you're going home now, let's finish on this. What, what, uh, what have you missed? What are you, what are you looking forward to, um, when you land, uh, and are you from Delhi? Is that right? Yeah. I live in Delhi. Yeah. I, yeah. What what are you looking forward to when you land? I'm so excited. We're going to do our first rope climbing event with Claus. I'm going to go back to our one major sport climbing crag in the south of India. It's called Badami. It's sandstone. Um, and it's one of my favorite crags. So, and I'm like in shape too. So I'm like excited to go back and see what it's like. <laughs> Send some to- shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and just do our first, like, you know, introduce women to like rope climbing it's it's definitely a lot more equipment and i've just done my spi so i'm like super excited to take these like new skills back see what and also one of the biggest takeaways for me on this trip has been at a crag when you're climbing with somebody what is the environment that you create for everybody and like you know what is a a good climber and um so since I've been the one who's been on the receiving end of like this treatment, because I was uh, I was getting a ride to the crag. So I kind of felt a little like it's slightly burdened that, OK, we'll do what you want to do. We'll go where you want to go because you're my ride. And um, how does this person, you know, make uh, the outsider feel and not the outsider in the sense that I'm coming from India, but also generally like a new person in the crag. And mm-hmm. it's been so different in all the places and. I am definitely taking back that uh, aspect of, uh, you know, culture and the climbing culture and how I want to be as a leader, how I want to be as a climbing partner. What better can I do to make another person feel, uh, to make sure that another person has a good time and is and feels, you know, um, liberated enough to do whatever the hell they want. So I'm I'm so excited to share that, be this new uh, uh I don't know, Danny. We were talking about something—a more a, a global climb. What, what was it? She's, word she's an she's already an ambassador. We were talking about how like she's an ambassador for GCI, but now she's climbed in the US for four months, and so she can actually like really understand a cross cultural kind of climber. Yeah, that's what. <laughs> <laughs> ambassador is like great. Yeah, it's, it's this heavy big word, and I'm mostly like just me. I want to be me at the crag, but a good you know this person who has. Uh, insight to this other world and um, I'm I'm stoked to go back to that and then I'll be climbing ice for two and a half months in the Himalayas. But more on a personal level, tell, just give us a little insight. You're off the plane. You are in India. You are an Indian. You're back in your home country. What's the first thing you do that you miss? Where do you go to eat? What do you do? Oh, I'm going to go and have a Golgappa, which is like a street food that I've been craving so much. <laughs> it's just this like <laughs> Uh, it's like this fried ball that's hollow and then you stuff some chickpeas into it and some it's like sweet and spicy and then you dip it into this mint water oh my gosh it's so good and it's like a process it's not you can't make it at home you have to go to like an outside vendor and you know most of the times they're not wearing the gloves that like you know and that's what makes it tastier i want to go to like this (laughs) typical place that i go to and have a gold cup i think that's my 
that's my full like I'm back home now. It's the taste in my mouth and it's just being in this place where everything is organized chaos. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Danny and Prerna. Prerna, if you're listening, I hope your journey home was great. And seeing your family and friends back there has been an awesome experience after being gone so long. If you want more information about the Global Climbing Initiative, you can go to globalclimbing.org. Check it out. There's ways to uh, volunteer. There's ways to donate. I mean, Maybe you're just going to one of these places and you could bring a big sack of gear for the people there. And actually, they're also, I think, I mean, it, if it's current, they're looking for a social media manager. So if you want to get involved with their program, maybe that's an opportunity if it's still current. It's on their website right now, globalclimbing.org. Cool. 2023, baby. Let's keep climbing fun, meaningful, and of course, safe in 2023. The whole year, starting now. Of course, check your notes.